Welcome to 43% and Rising, a podcast about women in marketing. We sit down with some of the industry's most game-changing women, hearing about their experiences rising to the top, as well as their views on how the marketing industry can evolve. I'm your host, Beatrice Alabaster, and this podcast is brought to you by Ernest. In today's episode, I'm joined by Zoe Scarman, founder of Bodacious Strategy Studio and author of Mad Men, Furious Women, the viral blog about misogyny in the ad industry. Zoe's multifaceted career has spanned across multiple continents and disciplines, including brand planning, entertainment strategy, digital comms, product development, and more. We'll be talking about how to rebel against traditional career paths and navigate sexism and misogyny in the workplace, asking whether there's hope for the future of the ad industry when it comes to achieving real equality. Hi Zoe, thank you so much for coming on today. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me. How are you doing? I'm all right, I think. I am coping day to day and that is the best I can do right now. I've got a bit too much on my plate, I think. Oh, no. <laughs> I know the feeling. Well, thank you so much for making the time for us. Uh, no problem. I know we're really excited uh, to have this chat. So to get things started, I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about what you do and your career and how you got to where you are today. God, that's a massive question. Um, <laughs> massive, massive question. I uh, I will start, well, I guess I don't even know where to start. So I've been doing this for about 20 years. So that's why it's such a massive question. Um, started out in ad agencies, worked all over the place. I've worked in Sydney, New York, London, uh, agencies, innovation consultancies, management consultancies all over the place. Um, and then I set up my own thing uh, in 2019 and I've been doing that ever since, I guess. Fantastic. And tell me a little bit about your business. Uh, how does Bodacious differ from a traditional strategy agency? Firstly, it's mostly just me. Um, and what I tend to do is a bit of a sort of Avengers assemble model. So as and when I need to bring in you know, excellent operators outside of my own personal expertise, so whether it be creative or design or technology or something along those lines. I've just got a network that I can sort of tap into and bring in. And then also, I think, you know, I, I pick and choose the work that I want to do um, and the kind of stuff that just gets me excited. And I just make sure that I focus solely on that um, and then make sure that I'm also able to jump down rabbit holes that I find interesting. So I guess it's more of a it's more of a lifestyle business for me um, in that I just get to do what I enjoy, which is really nice. <laughs> no, that sounds fantastic. Um, and as you say, you know, your career has been so incredibly varied, um, as is by the sound of it, the kind of work that you do now. Yeah. What drew you towards that kind of non-linear path? Boredom, probably. <laughs> um, I get bored really easily. And I think, you know, wherever I go, I tend to sort of soak up the nuts and bolts of where I am relatively quickly. And then when I've done that, I get really itchy feet and I'm like, right, you know, I want to go and do something else now. I want to keep learning. And I feel like whenever I've stayed in an agency or a consultancy for too long, I almost start kind of acting like a bit of an insolent teenager. So um, I will, you know, turn up late. I'll be a bit sullen. I'll just won't be that engaged. It's because my brain's just not firing enough. 
And so I need to keep interested. I need to keep learning. I need to keep kind of pushing myself. Um, otherwise, I'm not doing my best work and I'm not doing my best thinking. And so I've just naturally always got to a point where I've kind of picked myself up and moved myself on somewhere else. And I never stay anywhere you know, longer, really, than I think I need to. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I suppose it's whatever whatever approach works best for you, isn't it, to kind of create yeah. very disruptive, interesting, creative work. Um, it's such a different approach, though. I was wondering, have you faced, you know, a lot of critics or criticism about the way that you do things? Oh, yeah, 100%. So, you know, bearing in mind, I was doing this, you know, 15, uh, 20 years ago. And back then, um, you know, also kind of 10 years ago, even uh, back then, it was seen as being unreliable, being flighty, not being able to hold down a job. Um, You know, the career path and the kind of success path that was laid out for you was, you know, get in on the grad track or the de- on the ground floor, work your way up, you know, get into exec, get into director, get into, you know, C-level or the board. And then obviously, you know, where everybody wants to end up is being a chief strategy officer or a CEO or something like that. And I think from a very young age, I was watching the CEOs, especially when I was in Sydney, and they just looked fucking miserable, to be honest. <laughs> and I just, you know, they were there earlier than everybody else. They were there later than anybody else. They didn't really spend a huge amount of time with their families. It was just nonstop. And I just remember looking at one in particular, and I just thought, no, I don't want that. I'm not interested. And also, you know, the, the way that the agencies were structured and kind of still are structured to a certain extent today was that the higher you go up the chain the more people you manage. And so in the end, you end up actually getting taken away from the work that you love doing. And you end up managing your own small business within the business that you operate. And I was just never interested in that. You know, I was promoted really, really quickly when I was younger. And I was essentially a GAD, so a group account director, when I was about 22 or 23. And I was awful at it because I had absolutely no emotional maturity. I didn't give a shit about people's pay rises or their disputes between each other. And uh, I just was bored out of my mind. I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do the admin side. I don't care about p You know, I don't care about interdynamic, you know, disputes or anything like that. And I got dragged into a room. This is when I was at Mediacom uh, by the then CEO, who's actually now the, he's the global CEO of uh, Wavemaker now, but he was awesome. And he said, you know, you're really bad at this. And I was like, yeah, I, you know, I, I think I am. And I don't really know what to do. And I had a visa, you know, attached to the agency. So I didn't want to lose it because then I'd have to be deported. And he said, I think you're a strategist. Um, and I said, I have absolutely no idea what that is because this was still quite early, you know, in sort of strategy days. But I don't really care. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I just don't want to lose my visa. And so he said, right, I'm going to bring over a strategist from London and you're going to shadow him and you're going to learn strategy. And I was like, yeah, cool, fine. And then this guy came over um, called Steph Burford, who was brilliant. Um, and I, he's, a, he's a CSO of IPG Media Brands now globally. Absolutely brilliant. And I just attached myself to him like a basically like a leech, following him around and just watching him work. And I was fascinated because rather than doing admin and dealing with people disputes, he was just an uber geek. Um, and he was asking questions and he was falling down rabbit holes and he was constantly kind of being that annoying kid in the back seat that says, but why, you know, 10 times to try and get to some sort of answer. And I loved it. And I just thought, if this is strategy, this is exactly the kind of thing that I want to do. And then from there, I just kind of went on a bit of a topsy turvy journey of kind of falling into the right place at the right time, um, which was a huge amount of luck, but also just always having that curiosity. And I think the minute I realized that I could be curious for a living, is when it sort of clicked for me. Um, And then I realized very early on again that I was an individual contributor. I was not a people manager. And every single time I got promoted into people management, I would just leave. 
um, because it just didn't work for me and I wasn't very good at it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really it's refreshing to hear such a different perspective on it, actually, because it's so easy to feel like you have to, there's a kind of travelator path for you that you, ha- yeah. you kind of have to go down. But it's it's quite brave as well to step away from those things and, you know, turn a promotion down and say, no, that's not for me. How do you, I mean, were there doubts involved? Oh yeah, huge. I don't think I saw myself as brave. I was just a bit of a dick, to be honest. When when I was younger, (laughs) I was just like, um, I was really difficult. I was very headstrong. You know, I still am to a certain extent, but I think I've mellowed with age. But you know, when I was in my mid twenties, I I thought I was the shit. I, you know, thought that I was very smart and I was, but I was also a nightmare to manage and a nightmare to deal with. <laughs> and I just didn't really think, to be honest, you know, the amount of times that I just walked away from jobs or just kind of jumped into something new. I don't think there was a huge amount of thinking behind that necessarily. I think I was just like a magpie where I saw something shiny and I was like, right, I'm going in that direction, even if it made no sense, for, you know, versus where I just come from. And, you know, looking back on it now, it was a brilliant career path, but I had absolutely no plan. It was just accidental the entire time. Um, So, yeah, that was kind of uh, where it all went. Uh, No, it's fantastic to hear, you know, that kind of owning your decisions and just seeing seeing where things take you. Quite a kind of... uh rebellious way to do things which is great to hear that's probably Um, where it was I think it was coming from rebellion and just kind of wanting to almost be a bit pushy and to kind of see where I could take things as opposed to really thinking it through I think you know there's a number of times I remember even you know relatively recently where I quit jobs and my parents are just like what are you doing you idiot um I'd be like it's fine (laughs) I'll work it out and you know luckily for me it has already always worked out but I, I honestly didn't have a plan No, I mean, it's great. I think a lot of people, you know, I know me and, you know, so many people would definitely benefit from that conviction and just that drive and doing, doing, making the decisions that feel right in the moment, I suppose. Mm. And with, with hindsight, what do you think then are the key kind of ingredients for creating really disruptive work? Do you think that that attitude helped you in creating more interesting work? Yeah, I I think it definitely did. I think it was I guess the ingredients is like constant curiosity. So always wanting to figure out um, what's next or where does this pathway take me or what if we did it this way? And it's always questioning. So I'm not a fan of just repeating the same campaign process over and over again or using frameworks, for example, because to me that feels very paint by numbers and it doesn't necessarily feel like you're kind of pushing and really asking the right kind of questions. And you know, we live in an era of just continuous change so to keep trotting out the same, you know, fill this box in, fill that box in and out spits your strategy is just bonkers to me. Um, and I think, you know, there are some foundational aspects, but I think you always need to be pushing. You always need to be asking questions. And I think being comfortable being uncomfortable is a really important thing as well, which I think I got very young, um, where I'm perfectly happy to sit in a room, put my hand up and ask a really stupid question because I don't know the answer. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I want to hear the answer from the person's mouth, you know, who I want to ask question of, because I think in doing so, I might understand them differently. And I think, you know, a lot of people, especially early on in their career, are terrified of doing that because they don't want to come across as stupid or not knowing what they're doing. And they almost want to be the smartest person in the room. But I think for me, I've always been really comfortable playing dumb and just kind of sitting in the room and going, actually, I've, I have read, you know, your investment deck, but could you explain your supply chain process to me one more time? 
Um, or, you know, I understand that, you know, your brand is this color. Why is it that color? Yes, I've seen the brand guidelines, but you tell me in your language. And I think sometimes, you know, embracing that curiosity, embracing just asking all of the dumb questions just leads you to a very different place as opposed to sitting there and assuming that you know it all. Um, and I think you're uncovering information in a very different way, which then allows you to connect the dots and put them into a pattern that other people may not have gotten to. Absolutely. And I, I suppose particularly, you know, as women, it can be difficult, the need to ask lots of questions, because what you don't want to do is, you know, present yourself as being somehow naive or yeah. asking, as you say, like a dumb question in seriousness, but it's still so important to do. Has there ever been a kind of tension between that, between still asserting yourself, but being curious enough? Yeah, I think I've never had a problem um, embracing being the pushy person. And I think, again, when I was coming up in my career, I was surrounded, um, you know, by women who would play one of two roles. Um, and it was kind of your, that's your only option, you know, in, in the ad industry. It was either you're the kind of sweet, um, easygoing, can't do enough for everyone person who's always taking coffee orders. And I was like, no, fuck that. I'm not being that person. <laughs> or you're the bitch, you know, and you're difficult and you're pushy. And, you know, if you haven't finished speaking, you tell someone, I'm sorry, I've not finished speaking, I'm going to carry on. And then you get, you know, you get a bit of a rep where basically people are like, God, she's difficult. She can be a bit of a cow, you know, that kind of stuff. But I would rather be that person and get the job done and kind of do it in a way that I enjoyed. But that that to me at the time, you know, felt like my only option. Um, and I, you know, looking back on it now, I hated, you know, who I had to become and the amount of armor back then that you had to wear just to kind of get through your day to day was just insane. And, you know, I went into therapy in my late 20s, early 30s and basically just tried to get rid of the armor to a certain extent and understand how I could be myself and how I could be softer, but still obviously, you know, have strong boundaries. But it was heavy. You know, yeah. it was heavy. It makes you miserable. I was always, you know, the ice queen or the difficult feminist back on a high horse again. And you always get comments and, and, you know, you've just got to almost play with the boys to a certain extent, but it doesn't make you happy. But that was your way of, of operating. And, you know, there's many, many women, you know, again, if you look at women who were big in the sort of nineties and early two thousands and eighties and going on, those were the two roles, you know, and that's all you could do. And so for me, when I was asking questions, I was never worried about coming across as a naive woman. Instead, I was more coming across as, you know, the assertive, difficult one that just didn't shut up. Absolutely. And this actually, you know, kind of perfectly leads me on to um, talk about your recent essay, Mad Men, Furious Women. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, um, this is a viral essay um, and definitely a must read, in my opinion, about the different experiences of misogyny in the ad industry, all the way from, you know, sexist comments and jokes and pay, to pay disparity and even up until assault. Um Tell me about that. First of all, thank you, because, you know, I read it and I found it incredibly eye-opening, validating, moving. T tell me about that. What triggered you to start writing that piece and how did you find the experience? So it all came about really quickly. So I went for a coffee uh, with a woman who was a friend of a friend and she just moved over from New York and she was finding her feet in the ad industry uh, in London. And within about, you know, 10, 15 minutes, we were just perfectly normally chatting about which agencies to avoid and which agencies were okay based on misogyny and sexism and harassment. And we were just having a you know very normal conversation. 
And then we both caught ourselves and we were just like, this is insane. You know, we are having a conversation like this in 2021, warning each other who's good to work with and who's not so good to work with, you know, from being a woman's you know, perspective. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And, you know, she quite rightly said, you should write something about it. And I was like, I don't even know where I would start, to be honest. Um, and I don't really know how I would even go about it. And so anyway, she seeded the idea in my mind. And then I think literally a day later, I just sort of went, well, I'm just going to see if I can get a couple of sentences out and start to get an angle on this. And at the same time, I put a shout out onto Twitter and I said, look, I'm thinking about writing an article about, you know, misogyny in the ad industry. If anybody wants to share their stories with me, you know, please DM me and I'll add them in. And I was absolutely inundated um, with all of these women sharing their stories. And they were fucking horrible. You know, some of them were just cruel. Some of them were harrowing. Some of them were just about, you know, abuse. Some of them were just about, you know, crappy working conditions. Some of them about economic issues. And it was just, you know, another kick up the ass for me, realizing that this is not stuff that I experienced, you know, in my sort of 20s and 30s. It's still happening to young women now and older women as well. And so, you know, that just kind of spurred me on. And when I started writing, I wrote that entire thing in like an hour. Wow. And it all just came flooding out. And then I, you know, punctuated it with the stories rather than trying to sort of weave them into the narrative. But it all just came out. And I then sent it to my parents, of all people, poor bastards. Um, (laughs) And I was like, can you proofread this for me? And my mum and my dad were just like, oh, God, okay. Um, but they were fantastic. And they said, you know, this is really important. And we think you should hit publish. And I published it on the 4th of July, thinking most people, especially in the US are going to be out drinking. It was on the weekend, it was like a Sunday. And it just blew up. Um, and it went absolutely crazy. And it was all over the world, you know, within about 24 hours. And I didn't quite know what I had unleashed. And I think, you know, as you said, the reason why it went so viral, and it went all over the place is because women saw themselves in it. You know, whether it was assault, whether it was, you know, being mansplained to on Twitter, whether it was the different roles that you play in the agency world, you know, whether it was the fact that you had to kind of fight for pay, uh, you know, whether it's the fact that you're basically walking a tightrope every single day of, you know, the emotional baggage that you have going into a workplace, plus trying to do your job from a professional basis, it's just exhausting. And I think a lot of women read it and were just like, yeah, this is not just misogyny, um, in terms of, you know, thinking about sexual harassment and sexual assault. This is kind of everyday insidious misogyny that is permeating our cultures and our conversations and our behaviors with one another that the vast majority of people don't even see. They're blinded to it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you've hit on the perfect word there. It's it's exhausting. Yeah. You, you know, the experience of reading that piece in the best possible way was like a kind of barrage of these different all very different but just you know horrifying experiences of sexism in all of its different forms whether visible invisible you know it was just (laughs) it was a lot it was a lot to read and I suppose that's why it's so powerful because it's so you know as you say it permeates every level of that experience um one of the things I found most interesting about it actually was you identified a lot of different pressures and conflicts on women in the Mm. industry you know you mentioned before those two roles being the nice girl or being the bitch being true to yourself speaking up for yourself advocating for your work versus laughing along trying Mm. to fit in trying to make progress and not being perceived to be you know too confident or too self-promotional while still 
making sure that your work is being seen and you're getting heard? I mean, how it's a big question, but how do you even begin to navigate these these tensions? Have you have you found anything that's been useful? No. Not really. Not really. I think, you know, we're still all struggling with it. Um, You know, it really depends on who you have around you, you know, in the agency or the company that you're working in. It depends on your support network outside of work. Um, And as I mentioned, it's a constant tightrope act. Um, So you are trying to make sure that you're paid fairly. But when you advocate for yourself, you're seen as difficult or overly ambitious or overly confident. You know, if you're a strategist, for example, you've got to be the most curious person in the room, but then you're hogging the conversation. Um, You know, if you want to be the nice one, you know, and kind of making sure that you're looking after everybody, you do that to the detriment of your own career in terms of how people perceive you potentially in the agency, because they're going to see you as a bit of a doormat. Um, And you can't win. You literally cannot win. Um, And this is why, you know, I've been... I've been kind of labeled the bitch and the difficult one because that is the role that I chose. And then it suffocated me. And I had to realize that I needed to release a lot of that stuff as well. And I still have that, you know, reputation, especially, you know, when people attack me on Twitter or they kind of feedback in a way that is, you know, quite overtly misogynistic. I hang them out to dry and that's my choice. But as a result of doing that, people think that I'm, you know, scary or they think that I'm a bit too much. But again, that's on them. That's not on me. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned, you know, in my sort of mid to late 30s is that idea of you need to make yourself happy as opposed to everyone else around you. But I think it's it's such a difficult lesson to learn. And I don't think the vast majority of women get there until they're in their late 30s, early 40s, if at all. And, you know, that's a really easy thing for me to say to someone who's 24 and 25, but they're not going to, they're not going to be able to enact that. They're not going to be able to really believe that because they need to get the experience to get to that stage. And in the meantime, you know, they're being treated like crap and paid less. And, you know, they are walking that tightrope every single day. And yes, you know, men can call themselves, um, you know, feminists and allies and that kind of stuff. But the people that I've seen on the, on the whole, you know, in the agency world, from a male perspective, there are some good guys, which is wonderful. There's a lot of them that wear the language and they say the right things, but their behaviors, you know, belie the truth underneath it, which is they're just dickheads. Yeah. No, it's true. I remember, uh, I think you referred to them in the in the piece as the woke misogynists. Uh, my, <laughs> favorite, kind of... my favorite term is feminist fuckboys. That's feminist kind of, uh, fuckboys. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is perfect. I mean, that's, again, that's so difficult because there are, you know, there are more overt forms of misogyny in the mm. workplace and in the industry that you can at least, it, they're easier to spot if not deal with. But these kind of yeah. people who are outwardly saying and doing the right things and engaging with the right content and yet behind closed doors are just as difficult if not worse I mean that's that's an incredibly difficult dynamic to try to address. I I spoke to one woman uh, who had been a secretary for a CEO for about 15 years in the ad industry this is in Australia Um, she sent me her story after I after I hit publish Um, And she'd been with this guy for 15 years, bent over backwards, given up her life, you know, for him in many ways, as kind of the best EAs sometimes do. And it's a hardcore job. Anyway, she got pregnant. She went out, uh, had her maternity leave. And when she came back, this is in the midst of the pandemic and everyone's working from home anyway. And she said, is it okay if I do four out of my five days um, in the office, but I have one day at home? And he fired her. And this was two weeks after the agency and him had gone out talking about the importance of supporting women in the workplace, flexible working, all of that kind of stuff. Um, So yeah, 
That is that is kind of what is happening. Or you'll get a feminist fuck boy who's out there going, we need to support women. We need to end sexual harassment. And then he's paying some of his top female execs 20, 20, 25 less you know, than he's paying the male ones. And I've seen that as well. And so that's the kind of stuff. They're not necessarily, you know, misogynist in terms of harassment and assault or, you know, belittling women in public, but it's their actions in terms of how they remunerate these women, you know, how they allow kind of working practices and policies to be flexed to kind of fit their lifestyles. And they just don't do it. Absolutely. And these, you know, it's all too easy to kind of treat gender equality in the workplace as a trend, something that you kind of speak out about make a big song and dance about how you're going to be supporting people and making things more equal. Mm. But the reality is just so different. And that in turn creates a massive, massive weighty burden on the women who are trying to navigate that every day. One of the things actually in your piece as well, that's really stayed with me was you talk about um, the fact that the lack of senior women in the industry and how it's not just a lack of ability to kind of climb climb the food chain, mm. but a lack of desire after all of these kind of exhausting experiences. What what's kept you going and kept you know kept you at it and climbing in your career with so many negative experiences? Well, I haven't. I mean, I've opted out. I do my own thing now, um, and I think that's what a lot of women you know tend to do. You know, look at people like you know Sarah Tate, for example, who was the uh, most recently she was the CEO of TBWA. She tapped out you know, a couple of months ago, and now she's doing her own thing. You know, Amelia Toro, who's also incredible as a strategist, so she was CSO at TBWA, she tapped out, started her own thing. Um, You know, Michelle Goad, who I know really well, who was head of Gen Z um, Insights and Innovation at Nike, tapped out, does her own thing. Katie Dreck, you know, same with Nike, SVP of Women's Wear, tapped out, does her own thing. We all get to the same stage. And we all just start realizing that the game is rigged. Um, and the, the only way to get into the sort of top echelons is to give up your life, to play by their rules, to potentially get paid a hell of a lot less than they do and to continue to wear that armor. And I think, you know, for the vast majority of women, it's normally a very similar cutoff point. So it's normally kind of mid to late thirties when they're just like, do you know what? Fuck this. I'm out. Um, and it can be triggered by, you know, one-to-one experiences. It can be triggered through exhaustion. Um, it can sometimes be triggered through having children because obviously the minute that you have a child, you start obviously changing your priorities. And it's only then sometimes when you go back to agencies and you've got a baby to get home to you that you're sat there going, this is madness. Why the hell do I want to be sat in the office at 11 o'clock at night when I can be home with my family, which is as it should be. But the expectations that agencies put on their staff are just ridiculous. And, you know, and if you're 25 and you don't really give a shit about going home and you're happy to live on delivery and get an Uber home at 2 a.m., then it's okay for you to a certain extent, still not healthy. But when you actually have other priorities, that hits you in the face really quickly. And you're just sat there going, this is madness. Why am I here? And then again, that's a reason to tap out. And you want to go somewhere with like healthier working boundaries and better cultures that actually treat people better. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's so frustrating because you mention all of these super experienced, super talented women who just feel kind of driven out. I mean, is there is there a way to do things differently? It's a very big question, but do you do you have any hope or optimism about the way that agencies are going or do you think we're just going to have to completely <laughs> tear down the system and do something different? I don't know. I don't know. I think um, I think it's really hard. 
I think there was a there's a whole piece of, of research um, that Megan Averill did uh, for the three percent conference a couple of years ago that I brought into my piece again, where she actually went and interviewed loads of relatively senior female execs in the industry world, you know, across the US. And, you know, it was her research that talks about the different roles that you fall into, like whether you're the kind of good time girl or whether you're the, you know, you're the mother or, you know, whatever it is, you're yes. the bitch, that kind of stuff. And she, I had a chat with her actually after I, after I published, but also in her longer read that she published on her blog a couple of years ago, right at the very end, and she repeated this to me on the call, is she's not sure it can change. You know, right now we think it's so ingrained um, and it would be lovely to kind of wrap it up in a bow and say, here are five solutions in terms of what we could implement, but it's too far gone. Um, and that's why I don't hold out a huge amount of hope. I think, especially with the gigantic agency groups, it's like turning around a fucking oil tanker, you know, in terms <laughs> of changing the culture, because it's not just changing the culture in terms of misogyny. In order to get rid of the, you know, the inherent misogyny, you have to change working practices. In order to change working practices, you have to change how you're remunerated. In order to change how you're remunerated, you have to change the productization and commodification of agency, you know, services. And that changes the landscape and so on and so on. So it's all so interlinked that you can't try and change one aspect of it without fundamentally changing the business and the way that they're run because it doesn't work. You know, if we continue to pitch, then we're going to continue to have people sitting there until four o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, which is deeply unhealthy. Um, and if you're going to do that, then you're going to cut people out, you know, who basically want to go and have a life. And they reach a certain age where they just don't want to do that anymore because it's a strain on their personal lives, their emotions, their bodies, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, that is just the way that they run right now. And I think it's nuts. Um, so I know I, I don't have a huge amount of um, hope for the big agency groups right now. What I do have hope for is all of these women that I just mentioned. They are wise. They are wonderful. They are incredibly talented. They are super duper brainy, creative, been through the ringer several times over. And they're fucking smart. And what I hope is that those women are going to show other people that you can operate on your own or we can operate, as I said, in these Avengers Assembles model. I hope more clients will hire them um, as opposed to these big agencies. And actually, you know, we'll start to really champion expertise, you know, from these women that is not necessarily just expertise in terms of their craft, but also, you know, expertise in, ta in how to work better and work smarter and be a more emotionally resonant human who can connect with your clients on, you know, an equal partner relationship basis, as opposed to being treated like a supplier that you can kick around, which agencies allow, by the way, they shouldn't, but they allow it. And I think, you know, I'm hoping that they're going to paint, you know, a better path forwards, as opposed to us looking to the WPPs and the Omnicoms to try and fix this shit, because they're the ones that created it. Absolutely. It sounds like fundamentally the industry is going to need to use its imagination in a way, see how things can be done differently, see how things can be done, you know, using just as much talent, just as much um, skill and expertise and more to produce better results, but in a way that kind of works fundamentally better. Um, just to finish, because we're running out of time, I feel like I could, you know, keep asking you <laughs> questions about this Fine. all day. Um what advice would you give to any women pursuing a career in this sector? Oh, God. Um, probably a couple of different things. I think the first bit of advice I would always push is make sure you're paid properly for what you do. And you need to ask and you need to talk openly about money. 
And, you know, there's a couple of different things that you should definitely do when you're in your kind of younger career. First of all, if a job uh, asks you, how much do you want to get paid? Never answer that question. Terrible idea. Um, Always say, make me an offer because you're probably more likely to get more money that way. Also, look around and see what other people, you know, in that agency are earning. Other people, you know, just look at kind of job listings, that type of stuff. I remember when I was going for a job at a big agency, and I didn't know this guy, but we were splitting uh, responsibilities down the middle. And I called him and I said, can I take you for a coffee? And I just asked him outright. And I said, look, I don't know if, if you're comfortable talking about money, but how much are they paying you? And he was great. And he was like, this is what I'm getting. And they lowballed me, like 30 grand lowballed me. Um, wow. And I went back and I said, no, I would like what he's got. Thank you very much. And that led me to, you know, a hell of a lot more money. I think you just got to know, you know, your worth and really push for it. But always ask them to make you an offer first and then do your homework and then push. That's the first thing. So make sure that you are, you know, paid fairly. I think the second thing is find your tribe. I think that's one of the biggest things that kind of got me through a lot of the dark moments. And your tribe can be external to the agency world. It can be internal to the agency world. It doesn't really matter. But you need a bunch of incredible women that you can fall back on, that you can be vulnerable with, that you can go and ask hard questions to, uh, that you can ask for advice, you know, when you need it, because it can be incredibly lonely, you know, in those environments when you're dealing with some of this stuff and you don't know where to turn. And so you just kind of keep it all inside, which is not a very smart way to do it. Um, And then you end up kind of exploding either with burnout or resentment or both. And you just need to be able to, you know, go to other women and say, how do I deal with this situation? Or, you know, this happened to me today. What would you guys do? And try and figure it out, you know, from there. So I think those are probably the two biggest things is like money and support system. Fantastic. I mean, that's really, you know, useful, helpful, practical advice to start to kind of target some of these, some of these very big issues and complicated issues that we've talked about. But thank you very much for that. And um, thank you so much for joining. It's been such a pleasure. And I'd love to, maybe we can do a part two because (laughs) there's still so many things I'd like to ask you about. Of course. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about Zoe and her work, you can find her on Twitter at Zoe Scarman. And if you want to get in touch with us to comment or share your experiences, or you're interested in coming on the show, then you can reach us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Ernest Agency. I've been your host, Beatrice Alabaster. Our producer is Susan Conacotti. And this podcast is brought to you by Ernest, the B2B marketing agency chasing out the humdrum in London and New York.